Hi Brickies, I'm Dominic, the last one standing with a kink for cannibalism. And I'm Kate, the resident phobia expert who also hears voices. And you're listening to Shit and Bricks. A podcast where we talk shit about stuff that scares us. Ripping a few laughs and survival tips along the way. As always, please subscribe, rate and review us. And don't forget to follow us on the socials at Shit and Bricks Podcast. Like the morning after a night on the curries and cans, here it comes. So drop your ducks, pop a squat and let's get into it. The audio is recording. I'm recording. <laughs> Hello, dear Kate. Dominic, what are you doing here? Chin chin. She is. We all need a red wine. It's red wine Thursday, mm. which is different to Pinot Grigio Monday, Gin Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> and Vodka oh, Saturday. Vodka Saturday. Oh, yeah. Don't remind me. Oh, we're up to episode 45, Kate, just in case you were wondering. Episode 45. Whoopsie. That's astounding. You're on odds and I'm on evens at the moment. Oh, fantastic. I like that. Let's go to the casino. Um, how are you going? I'm good. How are you? I'm well. I'm really well. I sometimes forget that we are recording something that people will listen to. <laughs> I just do this for us. <laughs> but well, I'm going really well. It is Are You OK Day in Australia. Yes. And for those that don't live in Australia, uh, fuck you. And we don't care if you're OK. <laughs> no, obviously that's not the case. <laughs> no, we do. We love you. But if you've never heard of it, it's a, it's a day that we all in Australia go around and we don't just grill people and ask you, okay, are you okay superficially? It's a reminder to have a casual chat about one's mental health and check in with loved ones. And since Kate, you and I do a podcast that deals with some pretty heavy, dark, scary things. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, it's a bit of a one-sided conversation tonight, but audience, we're asking you, are you okay? And if you're not okay, Please tell someone, speak up, contact Beyond Blue, Lifeline, speak to a friend or call Kate and I as your absolute last resource. <laughs> oh, without a shadow of a doubt, that's the last option. But we will absolutely listen if you do reach out. Mm -hmm. So don't think you'd be falling on deaf ears. I think it's, yeah, it's really important because it is the education around just reminding people, just check in, check in with a friend, check in with someone if you're not feeling all right. Uh, I want to know, Dom, are you okay today? Oh, I'm okay. I've had a rough trot, uh, recently and feeling a little abnormal and mm -hmm. finding it hard to get out of the house and get out of bed sometimes. But the good news is I've got a mental health plan and I'm feeling super good and super strong Amazing. and I got lots of people around me. So I'm okay today. How that is you, good. How are you, Kate? I am reasonably well. I'm glad to hear that you have a mental health plan. They are so important and it's just something that it's like anything, any checkup, any sore toe, cough, headache, same thing. So mm. I'm really pleased that you've done that. It is nearly the end of term one. Wait, see? There you go. <laughs> That's where my brain is. It's almost the end of term three. Thank God it's not nearly the end of term one. Um, here for teachers in, in uh, Australia and it's everybody it's basically like that scene in wolf of wall street when leo dicaprio crawls to his lamborghini after taking quaaludes <laughs> that's where the teachers of 
we are at speaking about mental health land (laughs) (laughs) we are all quaaluding it to our lambos currently so that's that's where we're at but it's just a tiredness it's been it's a busy life everyone has a busy life and we have a holiday coming up which is great for us so two weeks off in uh in a week which is going to be fantastic and winter's over spring is springing sprunging all over the place i see leaves i see flower buds exactly is that correct yeah flower buds yeah 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 it could be whatever you want we're just having a time it's spring baby yeah bring it on all right so dom can i tell you about my episode for today you can in just one moment kate because i have a surprise for our listeners stop it and for kate too and for me too (laughs) (laughs) we are like the parents who have bought the gift for the kids but you're the one that bought it and wrapped it and i'm like oh what did we get you? Oh, aren't we nice? <laughs> Santa's real if any kids are listening. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. Easter bunny, dead. Sorry. <laughs> Tooth fairy, murdered the Easter bunny. In prison. Deal. <laughs> Actually, you do know about it, Kate, but I thought I should do a little bit of a plug for us and our BooPod network. Um, Amazing. We haven't been plugging some of our, you know, of some of the, ep- uh, not episodes, some of the other podcast in our network just recently but we will start picking that up again soon don't you worry but before we start doing that it is closely coming up to halloween in fact Mm. the countdown is really on kate and the boo pod network has cooked up something pretty fucking i'm gonna say it amazing um we are as a whole network going to be focusing and telling one story across all podcasts which oh, means my God. you're going to have to tune in, dial in, get your rotary phone out and... <laughs> because it's one hell of a mega story across every single podcast. So that's coming up for the month of Halloween. So please stay tuned I love for that. that. I knew all about that as of... <laughs> six seconds ago and I'm very excited. (laughs) No, I have been somewhat keeping abreast. I'm just ready for someone to tell me what to do. That's how I live my life. I really like it when people tell me what to do. Uh, So that sounds fantastic. So anyway, sorry to steal your thunder, Kate, but please take us away. We've been waffling on like a bunch of old big titties, grandmas. Big titty bitties. (laughs) Big titty bitties. Uh, Yes, we have, but I just want to say, as I was writing this story, so last week I did give you a little bit of a, um, you know, hey, I'm going to do a story about waking up, uh, you know, if you're ha- when you're having surgery. Mm. Um, then I got on a bit of a, a roll <laughs> and I've discovered this is my worst fear. What I'm going to talk to you about is my worst fear. It has topped... It has topped space. It has topped the ocean. It has topped spiders. It has topped bugs. Every, like everything. Shitting in public? Shitting in public. I will shit in public until the cows come home if I don't have to deal with what I'm going to tell you about today. Oh my goodness, so, Kate. This is quite a reveal. Like, it, Yeah. It's, I, oh, it's genuinely my worst nightmare as of like now. As yeah. of now. This is it. Tops the list. So I was... I was going to talk to you about waking up during surgery. Um, So I like giving facts. Here's a couple of facts about that. Uh, Two common fears that people have when they're about to go under anesthesia Mm -hmm. is that one, they won't wake up or two, they're not put fully to sleep and that they're awake, but they're paralyzed during their procedure. So, I mean, I think those are reasonable fears. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, both cases, though, just for our listeners out there who may be, you know, perhaps having some procedure, surgery, something coming up. Both of those cases are extremely, extremely rare. Uh, and in fact, the likelihood of someone, well, dying under anesthesia is less than one in a hundred thousand. So it doesn't seem like a lot, but you're twice as likely to die in a tornado. Um, but you're also twice as likely to go out for a walk and get hit and killed by a car. So there's some comparisons for you. Don't worry. Uh, we're just, you know, that's underscoring how rare serious complications from general anesthesia are. Um, and it's sort of, yeah, it's, it's one of those things. You can be scared of things. That's okay. But just be well aware. People will look after you. It's going to be okay. So that was one of the, you know, the fears and the factoids that I wanted to share. <laughs> Kate, I love you, but what in 100,000 does not, not give me comfort? <laughs> Do you know what's funny? As soon as I read that, when I was writing this, I wrote it and I was like, maybe I'll just pop an extra zero on this <laughs> <laughs> just to give a bit more comfort. Um, and it doesn't really give me comfort either because, yeah. But anyway, you guys will be fine. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's fine. Now, when I started looking at stories about people um, with what is called anesthetic awareness or mm-hmm. anesthesia awareness, uh, that's, yeah, It's it was one of those things where there were some stories that I read of people who had been in these situations. A lot of them, though, I wasn't like 100% on. I was like, I don't know if I really believe you. Yeah. I don't know that that's really worth telling. I don't know. You can look them up. There's plenty of Reddit threads. There's lots of articles. Uh, a lot of them were focused on the aftermath. So as in a lot of people have then since sued hospitals uh. and doctors and things when they've when this has happened to them. And whilst that's well within your rights to do so, I was like, oh, this story isn't vibing for me. I'm not into into this. So I sort of took a bit of a different, uh, you know, different track, so to speak. Kate, so yeah. just quickly, do you think it's safe to say that maybe you and I living in Australia, we don't really come from a real strong sue culture? Like, Correct. Yeah. The idea of suing people because... Uh, butterfly farted on you and it's that person's <laughs> fault like they're just the sue at anything attitude yeah that yeah other parts of the world seem to really love and thrive in <laughs> yeah kind sorry of- i'm st- i'm still just hung up on the phrase a butterfly <laughs> farted on you and that's really it's giving me a cute little visual oh wow but yes i agree being okay. in australia that's not a, a real big part of our our culture or mm. our yeah but that's why I thought Do you know what I'm going to take a bit of a different tact uh and I did find an original story that has been on my list for a while and I've gone back to it mm-hmm. and today I am going to tell our listeners about locked in syndrome mm. <laughs> I'm flapping my hands like their wings yeah I can see it's, it's great did a butterfly fart on you yes <laughs> <laughs> So locked in syndrome for our listeners. Uh, There are some synonyms, which I will butcher, but stay with me. Cerebrum. Why don't I start with the hardest one? Uh, Deferented state. Pseudocoma. Pseudocoma sounds like a cute name for a band. Yeah. Um, Because it's cerebral. Come on, Kate, get it together. Cerebromedullar spinal disconnection. 
Oh. So that, I mean, it's basically your brain disconnecting from your spine, I would imagine, okay. is what they're saying. Now, locked-in syndrome is a rare neurological disorder in which there is complete paralysis of all voluntary muscles, except for the ones that control the movements of the eyeballs. Okay. Individuals with locked-in syndrome are conscious and awake, but have no ability to produce movements outside of eye movement or to speak. Cognitive function is usually unaffected. Communication is possible through eye movements or blinking. Locked-in syndrome is caused by damage to the pons, a part of the brain stem that contains nerve fibres that relay information to other areas of the brain. So not your mons, your pons. Your pons. No mons, your pons. <laughs> now, <laughs> there is a uh, an amazing article on scientificamerican.com. And it was an interview with a doctor who I'll talk about a little bit later, but it's quite an in-depth article. If you would like to know a little bit about how do you tell if a patient is, you know, comatose or conscious, Mm -hmm. it was phenomenal. So I'll touch on a couple of bits and pieces, but scientificamerican.com, we will post a link to that article in our pod. It's incredible. So let's go into a little bit about locked-in syndrome, which I'll refer to as LIS later, just because... It's easier for me to say at this time in the term. (laughs) I'd like to tell you a bit of a story about a gentleman by the name of Martin Pistorius. Now, not to be confused with Oscar Pistorius, who was in the news about things. This is a different person. So Mm. when Martin Pistorius was 12, he was felled by a mysterious illness that slowly stripped him of his ability to move and speak. Doctors told his parents that Pistorius was a vegetable and that he ought to be placed in an institution where he could die comfortably. But he didn't die. For 12 years, his parents shuttled him to and from a special centre in the day and they saw to his needs at night. All the while, Pistorius' parents cared for him but lived their lives as if he wasn't mentally there and couldn't understand anything that was going on. But the twist to that is Pistorius was awake and alert nearly the entire time. (laughs) So his parents are taking care of him, taking him to, you know, the care place, looking after him at night, saying goodness knows what to him around him and he is fully conscious and awake you know or fully uh, conscious in his mind that the entire time yeah now pistorius estimates that he began to wake up in inverted commas when he was around 14 or 15 years old mm-hmm. so there was you know a year or two where he was not conscious of what was happening but then all of a sudden started to regain that that consciousness of what was going on During all of those months, uh, Joan and her husband Rodney took care of him. Seeing their boy in such poor condition was heartbreaking. At some point, Joan wanted some sort of relief and she told Martin, I hope you die. Of course, she didn't know he could hear her say that. Yeah, but look, I could... I, I wouldn't be upset if I heard someone say that to me. No, and to be honest, as we go through this story too, and I'll touch a little bit on his TED Talk as well. He has a couple of TED Talks which are fascinating, um, but he certainly thought that himself. Yeah. So it's not like he was, you know, super shocked, but it would still be a bit like far out. Like, mum, I'm sorry I'm putting you through this. Like, I'm here. I am here, but I'm not here. Yeah. Now, at the daycare centre, Martin spent hours doing what he was made to do, which mainly including watching Barney and Friends. And when he got better, he could not find the right words to express how much he fucking hated that show. <laughs> He's like, if you put Barney and Friends on again, I'm going to go crazy. <laughs> Do not do it. 
I don't blame him. Like you, yeah. don't, you don't need to be in any sort of state to, <laughs> to hate Barney and friends. And I mean, he's not a child. He's well and truly intelligent, developed, yeah. and everything. Why would Correct. you put on something like Barney? I know, but I guess they're just like in the care center. They're just like, well, I mean, he's a he's a vegetable. It's not going to matter. He's not conscious. We don't know. But then in 2001, Hope came to Pistorius's life. A new worker at his care center started talking to him and eventually noticed some minor signals that made her think that he was more aware than everyone believed. She then urged Martin's parents to take him uh, to get evaluated at the Center for Augmentative and Alternative Communication. There, people could understand him for the first time in over a decade. Hey, bloody oh. men. Okay, whoever this person was, is there a way to find out who that worker was? I would have to do some more research because I did look, um, but I could not find something in the first sort of three, four sources that I looked at. So mm. I'd have to go a little bit deeper. But if you do leave that with me, I reckon next episode I can I can tell you who that was. But yeah, what an incredible discovery. Yeah, they deserve our shout out for the week because that's just... Definitely. Oh, I no, we've, we've got a shout-out already. Oh, well, we, we can do. have the we shout-out later. Let's have heaps of shout-outs. We're fine. Now, this has happened. So he's gone to this other facility. Simply knowing that he was mentally present gave him the strength to continue recovering from his vegetative state by mm-hmm. actively redeveloping his mental faculties, despite the fact that he was effectively alone in the struggle. All by himself, he learned how to tell the time to keep his spirits up and he eventually, you know, started to find people who are understanding that his eyes and his half smiles were his way of communicating. Mm. Now Pistorius's incredible story of resilience and inner strength is chronicled in his 2013 memoir, Ghost Boy, My Escape from a Life Locked Inside My Own Body. Incredible memoir. I've had a look at the first probably two chapters. Uh, it's pretty, yeah, Pretty powerful stuff. It's interesting. There is a lot to his life. I will not delve into it today. We do not have enough time because there's actually some, there's good and bad that happens in Martin's life. So, which, you know, everybody's life has that. But in 2008, Martin Pistorius met his wife, Joanna Pistorius, over Skype while she was visiting a friend. They became inseparable in cyberspace and fell in love within six weeks. How convenient that she has the same last name. I know, right? (laughs) Hang on. You got me. (laughs) Three months later, they were already talking about marriage. And in 2009, they tied the knot. So they're only together for like a year, which is great. Now, Joanna once said that she knew his physical limitations would never limit their love because he was more alive than anyone I had ever met, which is cute. Go, Joanna. Now, as of uh, the article I read in 2019 and the research that I did, it appears that Joanna and Martin are still together. Although the doctors warned that he could never have a child, but in 2018, they had a son, Sebastian. Yeah, don't so, you tell this Martin what you cannot do yeah. because he's going to go out there and he's going to do it. Exactly. So they have like the cutest little boy and his Instagram, Martin Pistorius's Instagram has pictures of his little boy and yeah, it's, it's super cute. And he's gone on to do incredible things. Um, his TED talk is called How My Mind Came Back to Life and No One Knew. And he talks a lot about a little bit more in detail about what it was like day to day, like to just be inside your own mind and that's it. And nobody talking to you, nobody communicating, all of that. It's fascinating. Now, Martin's, uh, you know, life, it shed light on a rare but horrifying condition. As we know, it's called locked in syndrome. 
I want to give you a bit of a background on this overall. Okay. So researchers first coined the phrase locked-in syndrome in 1966, but the earliest written description of the condition dates back to at least 1844 in Alex Dumas' book, The Count of Monte Cristo. Mm. The character was described as a corpse with living eyes who communicated by blinking to a helper who pointed at words in a dictionary. Mm. So, you know, it's, it's like, yeah, 1844. Now imagine... Oh, imagine if you had to tell a long story, Dom, like we do every week. We write pages and pages and pages of text to read out for our pod for people to listen to. I cannot comprehend if I was trying to just explain that by blinking my eyes to get someone to pick up what are the words that I'm trying to say. Just that sheer willpower to do that. It, it's mind boggling. Patience. I think it's. I think it's all relative though, Kate. Like if you mm. were <clears throat> stuck in, locked in your body and just, you had no other options, something as simple as one word, you know, achieving one word or a new word or yeah. even just getting engagement and recognition from a human being, which you normally not ever get. Mm-hmm. I think it's all just relative. You, You're right. You, your ability for patience would probably increase because yeah, it's in a, we, I don't think we can, yeah, we can it's, picture it's an and imagine it. No, that's it. Now, people with LIS have full mental cognition, uh, but they are, as the term implies, imprisoned in a body that doesn't let them communicate with the outside world. Because they can't speak, they have almost no control over their facial movements and limbs. A person with LIS may seem LIS may seem to be in a vegetative state or coma, but they are in fact fully aware of everything that's going on around him or her. It can be very difficult for doctors to tell the difference between vegetative coma and LIS. And a 2002 analysis of 44 LIS cases showed that in about 55% of cases, it was a family member, not a doctor, who discovered that the LIS patient was fact, in fact mentally present. Mm. So f- small study, 44 cases, um, but there's not many cases worldwide, to be honest. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like in the millions, which in the concept of the population of the world, it's not very much, but that's 55% of family member discovered. So the family members with them talking, they're like, something is not, I don't think, I think there's something still going on. Like, Oh, I always think about what I would do in that situation. If someone I loved was in a coma or doctors are telling me that they're in a vegetative state and there's zero hope of them recovering I don't know. I just mm. don't know enough about it. And I'm sure I would exhaust all options and all tests and all specialists and do everything I possibly could before I made a decision to let them go. But yeah. Yeah. And the research in that initial article from Scientific American, it goes into a lot of that around the tests and what they can do. And some of them are very much like, you can't really tell sometimes like you, you could do, you can do a lot of tests, but occasionally it slips through and you can't tell. Um, now diagnosis can be difficult because as in Pistorius's case, a patient can develop LIS after being in an initial vegetative state mm-hmm. following the injury. Rehabilitation researchers, Imar Smith and Mark DeLaghi of Ireland's National Rehabilitation Hospital recommend carefully re-examining a patient's vertical eye movement if a doctor's, if doctors spot a particular kind of brain injury in MRI scans. Mm-hmm. 
They also say that, especially in the early days of LIS, even eye movements can be exhausting for a patient. That's why quick and simple communication codes need to be established immediately. One eye, like they suggest something like one upward movement signifying yes, and then two rapid movements up signifying no. But I was, try it, Dom. Like it's, that's Mm. tiring for me Mm. and I can talk. Like... It hurts my eyes. So <laughs> Just, we're not talking blinking here. We're talking. No. We're talking literally. All they can Moving do is move the eyes. eyeball. Just correct. Because I guess that makes sense. All the other muscles around an eye are not. Yeah, and I mean, there's different states as well. I'll yeah. go into that a little bit in that sense. Uh, but yeah, certainly that eye movement. Just even something small. It's and you've, you'd have to put so much focus on it. But yeah, look. All of those sort of movements, um, it engages patients in opportunities for in, for conversation. And in those opportunities, it needs to be frequent, but brief. Yeah. So just ask like a couple of questions and then cool, good job. 10 minutes later, a couple of questions. Like, you know, trying to help these people, but at the same time understanding it would be bloody hard work. Um, so there are three degrees of LIS, as I was just saying. Mm. Classic. <laughs> Classic LIS. Uh, now, in which people can't speak or move their limbs, but they can blink and move their eyes. Okay. Incomplete, in which people can also move their thumb, fingers, neck, or head. And total, in which people are completely immobile and they can't even move their eyes. So Ooh. it's that's why it's so challenging to diagnose because, I mean, those symptoms are akin to a vegetative state. So am I saying that right? Vegetative? Yeah, I think that's... Vegetative? Yeah, I think either is fine. Okay. I sound like I'm just sort of stumbling on that a bit. As long as you're not saying like veggie table. Veggie table. Yeah, that's true. I won't do that. (laughs) Now, Dom, you're so... Great question. How is this caused? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yes. The condition uh, is caused... For our listeners, Dom just looked dead into the camera as close as he possibly could and just swiveled his eyeballs around. So that's him asking questions, I'd imagine, in this state. All right. Now, the condition is caused by lesions lesions on the brainstem, usually after a stroke, but sometimes after a traumatic brain injury. And these lesions can block the motor pathways connected to the brain, Uh, there's no way to tell how many people are living with LIS because of how difficult it is to diagnose. Um, but also there are really high mortality rates as well, particularly on onset. But like Pistorius, a handful of people with LIS have been able to break through the physical constraints that kept them from the outside world. Neurologist and LIS expert, Dr. Stephen Lauren, Lorries. Now this is the doctor who has published the article that was in the scientific American. Mm -hmm. He notes several striking testimonies in his paper, the locked in syndrome. What is it like to be conscious, but paralyzed and voiceless to be that title? I'm probably not going to pick that book up. (laughs) It's (laughs) It's not light reading. I'm okay. Thanks. Now included in his paper was a case of Philippe Vigand, who also wrote the 2000 memoir. Only the eyes say yes. With his wife, Stephanie. That's a good Who realised it was, isn't it? Only the eyes say yes. It's a James Bond movie, I think. Wasn't that one? Mm. No, that's like an opera. So I was (laughs) going to try and do like diamonds are from her. But try and do that. Yeah. Love her. Uh, So, yeah. So his wife, Stephanie, realised that he was blinking to communicate with her after two months in a supposed coma. That would have been quite a discovery. Yeah. 
now, um, Laurie's, Dr. Laurie's goes on to say that the couple conceived a child after Philippe became paralyzed and he's written a second book illustrating that LAS patients can resume a significant role in family and society. Laurie's also goes on to say that uh, in addition to activities like watching TV, listening to the radio, music, books on tape, family visits and vacations, there are examples of people with LAS who can resume their professional work. An attorney with LAS used Morse code eye blinks to write his legal opinions and another LAS patient taught third graders using an electronic voice device. See, boom. I know. It's so, it's like, it boggles my brain. Like I can't comprehend. Sometimes I struggle to teach eighth graders and I'm, you know, I have all my faculties, you know, at the moment. Um, Julia Tavalorit. I'm really trying hard. Julia Tavalaro. There we go. Julia Tavalaro wrote it. Why did I get it right one time and go back and try again? Why did I just leave it? (laughs) Julia wrote another notable memoir called Look Up for Yes. Nah, I give that like a five out of ten. That chronicled the six years that she spent trapped in her body before anyone noticed that she was mentally present. It wasn't until someone told told Tavaro. Ah, how tall? It's a name. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, now it wasn't. This is me. This is me to a freaking T. It wasn't until someone told Tavalaro a dirty joke at which she attempted to smile that anyone realized that she wasn't a vegetable. That is me. That is a hundred percent me. I would just be like, oh yeah. But that goes back to your point about family just knowing, you know, oh, if Kate's in a, Kate's in a bad way, here's a way to, to get a reaction out of her. Right. Like, yep or this is what she's really passionate about, or this is what sets her off or whatever. Um, only family are going to, are going to know that. Agreed. Like SOS from the Mamma Mia, the movie, mm. like, obviously I put that on, like it's Pierce and Meryl. <laughs> I don't know how perfection can be encompassed in a different way. Cause that's it. It's mm. done. Everybody needs to move on. Uh, now, I love this. Uh, I listen to a radio show where sometimes they do this sequence about um, like mood changes or, or shift changes where they're like laughing about something and then they go on to, <laughs> to talk about something serious, mm-hmm. like in a news program. I feel like that's what we do sometimes because oh, yes. we're, <laughs> we're laughing about Mamma Mia. And my next sentence is, in other words, as horrifying as the symptoms of LAS are. <laughs> yep. Which they are. Smooth. But there is hope for families and care communities. They can rally around someone with this condition. Once an LAS patient makes it past the first year and is medically stable, research has shown that he or she can continue to live for a long period of time, provided they have access to technologies that can help them communicate or move around, like wheelchairs, computer control that are activated by head movement, or eye trackers that allow people to communicate via an interface with words and symbols on it. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty, yeah, it's pretty spectacular. Now, Laurie's, Dr. Laurie's notes that once communication has been re-established with a person with LIS, it's paramount to respect their wishes in regards to end-of-life care or the withdrawal from care if they so choose. Still, Laurie's concluded that patients who are diagnosed with LIS and treated early and intensively with communication and motor therapy can eventually return home and lead fulfilling lives. 
Patients suffering from LIS should not be denied their right to die and to die with dignity, but also, and more importantly, they should not be denied the right to live and live with dignity and the best possible uh, revalidation and pain and symptom management, concluded Lorries. Mic drop. Boom. He is pretty much on it. And yeah, if you go and read his whole article, he's pretty switched on. He's, he knows his stuff. He's definitely been to school. All right, we'll make sure that we have his number. We if link it, yes. should happen. Thanks. Thanks, Doc. Dominic. Kate. That's uh, <laughs> good to have you here. <laughs> now, that is a bit of a summary about the LIS condition, about some of the research that went into it. But I want to tell you about uh, another specific person. And this person, his name is Richard Marsh. Have you heard? I, I've known a family named the Marsh, like they're the Marshes, oh, but the Marshes. I don't water know. Dick marshes? Marsh. Yeah, waterfight marshes. Oh, cool. Shout out. Mm. <laughs> now, Richard Marsh is a another uh, victim, I suppose. Would you it's a vic they're a victim of this condition, wouldn't they be? A patient? Uh... A p- yeah. Uh some yeah. I don't know. I think victims too like I don't know if it's the right word. It's like it's something's happened. Ha- has been Things done to, to them. them. Yeah, that's right. Oh, well. Yeah. I mean, here's a, here's a story of Dickie Marsh. Now, two days after regaining consciousness from a massive stroke, Richard Marsh watched helplessly from his hospital bed as doctors asked his wife, Lily, whether they should turn off his life support oh. machine. <laughs> no. Marsh, a former police officer and teacher, had strong views on that suggestion. The 60-year-old did not want to die. He wanted the ventilator to stay on. He was determined to walk out of the intensive care unit and he wanted everyone to know it. But Marsh couldn't tell anyone that. The medics believed that he was in a persistent vegetative state, devoid of mental consciousness or physical feeling. But nothing could have been further from the truth. He was aware, alert and fully able to feel every touch to his body. See, what I... And this may be too technical... Mm-hmm. What I'm not understanding is, you know, you can look at someone in a, in a, laying in a hospital bed and go, okay, well, they, they're not responding, their reflexes aren't, they're not moving, nothing, they're not talking. I get that. But don't you scan a brain and go, well, I'll ask them a question or mm-hmm. musical play or like there's got to be some activity going on in a in an LAS patient's brain versus a vegetative state's brain. Like, yep. and, and I'm not expecting you to have the answer of this, Kate, but I can't understand the difference and why it's not easily recognisable. That's all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's okay. And, I mean, it's a lot of... There's a lot of different elements. Yeah. And I'm I sure think... it's not simple. I... <laughs> no, no, no. No, but I hear what you're saying because there is there are technologies to to scan people's heads and to undergo different testing and things like that. So I will flick over to that Scientific American because this he does have some good responses. So one of the questions is asked is, um, you know, patients are brought to this specialist hospital uh, with, you know, Dr. Lorries um, and... How do, one of the questions is asked is how do they determine if they're conscious? 
And he goes on to say, well, of course the physician will say, squeeze my hand, but this time while the patient is in a brain scanner, Mm. if the motor cortex is activated, we know the patient heard and understood and is therefore conscious. We also want to determine the chances of recovery and what the physician or the patient's family can do. With different brain scanners, I can find out where brain damage is located and which connections are still intact. Um, This information tells family members what chances of recovery are. If results show that there are no hope, then, you know, you talk about those challenging choices. Uh, But occasionally we see much more brain activity than anticipated. Uh, Then they can do some, you know, uh, different tests and treatment and things like that. But another question is asked is, how can minimal consciousness be distinguished from locked-in syndrome? And I found this really fascinating. So minimally conscious patients can barely move and are not completely aware of their surroundings. In other words, their motor and mental abilities are limited. Locked-in patients can't move either, but they're completely conscious. So they've suffered a particular injury of the brain stem. Their cerebral cortex is intact, but it's disconnected from their body. What a fun time that'd be. All they can do is move their eyes. So, um, and neither the patient or the physician is aware of it at the beginning. That's why diagnosis is challenging. Uh, Just because they can't move doesn't mean that they're unconscious. Um, Consciousness does not reside in our muscles, but in our brains. Uh, So to be honest, they've got a lot of different tests that they, they can do. But again, because there's so many varied possibilities yeah that's i feel like that's kind of the the challenge yeah yeah but i don't disagree with you either no 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 Um, you definitely that was very helpful yeah it's sort of it's it's been a real like journey like i've genuinely i because i asked exactly the same thing before i started reading it but then i was as i was reading more just even with the different states of of locked in it's like far out brussels sprout like it's a bit of a it's a bit tricky and you can't just say Doctor, I am still here. Please mm. do not switch me tubes off. Yep. Leave me tubes. <laughs> Just like Dickie Marsh. Yeah, tricky Dickie Marsh. Tricky Dickie. Now, he says um, uh, the first sign that Marsh was recovering was with twitching in his fingers, which then spread through his hand and arm. So he's fortunate in that instance that he regained, you know, that movement yeah. um, to some of his limbs, which is amazing. He describes the feeling of accomplishment of being able to scratch his own nose again. Mm. Listeners, just take a second. Just touch your nose. Scratch your nose. That is something that he achieved. Mm. This is like little things. You know, you talk about gratitude and all of those sorts of things. Like, that's amazing. Now, it is still a mystery as to why Richard Marsh recovered, but the vast majority of locked-in syndrome victims do not. Richard goes on to say, they don't know why I recovered because they don't know why I had locked in in the first place or really what to do about it. Lots of the doctors and medical experts that I saw didn't even know what locked in was. If they did know anything, it was usually because they'd had a paragraph about it during their medical training, but no one really knew much about it. Mm. Marsh never spoke publicly about his experience before, but this is an interview with The Guardian. He gave a rare detailed insight as to what it is like to be locked in. He said, all I could do when I woke up in ICU was blink my eyes, he remembered. I was on life support with a breathing machine with tubes and wires on every part of my body and a breathing tube down my throat. I was in a severe locked-in state for some time and things looked pretty dire. My brain protected me. It didn't let me grasp the seriousness of the situation. It's weird, but I can remember never feeling scared. I knew my cognitive abilities were 100%. I could think and hear and listen to people, but I couldn't speak or move. 
The doctors would just stand at the foot of the bed and just talk like I wasn't in the room. I just wanted to say, hey, people, I'm here. Uh, but there was no way to let anyone know. So Marsh had a stroke on the 20th of May in 2009. Four months and nine days later, he walked out of his long-term care facility. Yeah, you Four did. months. Yeah. Today, he has recovered 95% of his functionality. He goes to the gym every day, cooks meals. Uh, he bought a bike. He rides around Napa. Good on him. He lives in California. What yeah. a time. But he says he still gets really, really emotional when he remembers watching his wife tell the doctors that they could not turn off his life support machine. Oh, yeah. That's a nightmare. Yeah. We... Oh, he said that the doctors had just finished telling Lily that I had a 2% chance of survival. And if I should survive, I would be a vegetable. I could hear the conversation in my mind and I was screaming no. So it's like you were saying earlier, Dom, you would go through all the tests. And even if they told you there was a 1% chance, 2% chance of survival, you'd still want to push and do all of those tests. This is Lily. You're Lily. She heard that 2% and she went, nah, I'm, I'm sticking with my, my husband and I want to see what we can do. So on the third day, sorry. Uh, yeah, I think I would be that Optimus person, Optimus, Optimus Prime. No, mm. Optim, like as in I would be optimistic. You'd be optimistic, yeah. And if there was any sort of indication, I think I would, I'd, I'd, I'd have a crack. I would, mm -hmm. I would push pretty hard. Yeah. Now the doctors have said there's a 2% chance of, you know, survival basically or not being in a vegetative state um but on the third day after his stroke so he was like you know in his locked in syndrome state but on the third day after the stroke the doctor peered down to him and uttered the long four words you know i think he might still be in there let's see oh. could you imagine Fucking hell. oh like, you're sitting there fucked. like oh come on mate let's see do all your tests the moment the doctor discovered Marsh could communicate through blinking was one of profound relief for Marsh and his family, although his prognosis did remain critical. You're at the mercy of the other people to care for your every need, and that's incredibly frustrating, but I never lost my alertness, he said. I was completely aware of everything going on around me and to, like, and to me right from the very start, unless they had me medicated. Mm. During the day, I was really lucky. I never spent a single day when my wife or one of my kids wasn't there. But once they left, it was lonely. And not in the way of missing people, but the loneliness of knowing that there's no one there who really understands how to communicate with you. The only way for Marsh to sleep was to be medicated. However, that only lasted for four hours, after which there had to be a three-hour pause before the next dose could be administered. Ugh. Yeah. He just said that time goes so slow, it just drags by. I don't know how to describe it. It's almost like time stands still. He said it's a terrible, terrible place, but there's always hope. You've got to have hope. Mm. So that's the story of Richard Marsh and his locked-in state. Good on you, Dickie. On you, Dickie. Now, we have, I have two pop culture references for you all. Later so. I hope that everybody has learned a little something, something about, you know, anesthesia awareness or locked in syndrome or things like that, because I certainly did. I learned that it's my number one fear <laughs> and I never want to be in that state. Kate, I'll oh. never pull the plug on you. I will look at Thank your you. eyes. But if 
Like, if it goes on a bit long, if I'm a bit of a drama, then feel free. <laughs> if I'm being just, a real bore. If I'm just not really doing much, you know, if I can't play Nintendo 64, what's the point? Just sticky tape my fingers to the controller and <laughs> play for me. <laughs> All right, pop culture refies. We have the film that was um, made in 2007, which I have not seen, but really want to i don't know why i haven't seen it i remember the trailers for it and i've not seen it but it is called awake and hayden christensen and jessica elba are in it and hayden has a heart problem but he's super duper rich and he like has his friends and stuff and then he has to have a surgery and then they put him under but he can hear everything they're saying and it turns out that the doctors and his girlfriend actually want him dead so they're gonna like pretend that they flipped up on the surgery and mm. kill him. But he's here's all these plans. Yeah, Kate, I can't wait to watch it. It's on Stan and yes. we totally have to do a movie review of it for a bonus oh my episode. God. We need to have a movie night together because guess what else is on Stan? There is a film that is called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. This is a film which was adapted from a book which is which was written uh, by uh, Jean-Dominique Balbi. Now, he was the editor of uh, French Elle, the mm -hmm. magazine. He suffered a stroke that left him with locked-in syndrome. And he wrote an entire book, which the movie was based on, by blinking his one remaining functional eye. What? So you tell me that work's a bit tough, you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can't exactly. go to the gym today. And this champ wrote an entire flippin' book by blinking one eye and then it was turned into a movie about his life. The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. What is it with butterflies? Jeez. I know. Butterfly farts and a movie is made. <laughs> <laughs> so those are my two pop culture references. Awake with Hayden Christensen, Jessica Elba, and the book and film adaptation of The Diving Bell and the Butterfly based on a true story of someone who has, has had locked in syndrome and that ladies and gentlemen is my epi for the week kate seriously i think that's one of your best episodes ever <laughs> thanks i think i was just i was fascinated yeah. i hope that you know i know i went in a bit of a, a rabbit hole of some mumbo jumbo but hopefully you all learn something because it's truly horrendous i can't imagine anything worse i really can't yeah i think uh, well, it's definitely not a fear of mine. I don't think it's okay. a pleasant thing, obviously, but mm. I think because there's no maybe physical pain involved or okay, yeah, my my fear's a little more frighty or a little more physical pain focused. But yeah, I can totally relate or understand why that would be such a big fear of of many, many, many people. Yes. I need to be heard. <laughs> Please listen, Please to, listen me. to me. <laughs> oh, true. Oh, man. someone, for the love of God, listen to me. <laughs> All right. Well, I hope you've listened to us today and I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Um, if you liked it, let us know. If you didn't, also let us know. We'll pop your um, text in the bin. But we love you so much and we'll talk to you so soon. And Dom... Do you have a little, um, you know, 
little little epi <laughs> suggestion for next week for like a teaser? Is that a thing? There you go, teaser. Well, we're going to find out what bloody happened to T- Dean Arnold Call and his band. The Candyman yeah, can. exactly. So we left on a bit of a cliffhanger. Yeah, we did. Um, and I'm going to finish off that story. Amazing. Even though it was quite a hard story to tell, um, yeah. I'm going to finish it up and we're going to get it done. And then I'm going to move on to a different genre of stories for a little while just to recover e- a bit. <laughs> yeah, I hear that. Just to cleanse the palate. Yes. Awesome. Well, I hope you all join us. And uh, yeah, just shout out to everyone listening. We love you. And we'll talk to you soon. Love you, boy. Love you, boy. That's a wrap. Big shout out to everyone for tuning in to Shit and Bricks. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review us. Plus, you can find extra little nuggets on our socials. Next week, we'll be back talking more shit, so do not forget to tune in. And remember to wipe, flush and wash your hands. Goodbye. Goodbye.